Hello friends and welcome to the show. You know, about a year ago, I had today's guest, Natalie Garamone, on the program and we talked about conflict. It was a great talk. She gave us some great tools to use and I figured, well, we've checked that box, so let's move on. And we did. And then, of course, 2020 hit and a lot of things have changed. And for many of us, this year is not a good one. And if you're not having a good year because you either lost your job, you're working virtual, you're jammed in the house with family, you're stressed, you're afraid, there's a good chance you're going to start experiencing conflict. And so we had Natalie come back and she's going to give us a little different perspective on conflict. How do we deal with it in a virtual environment? And, you know, the techniques are the same, but the warning signs are very different. And she's got four specific warning signs to look for especially if you're on virtual meetings. And then of course, she'll give us solutions to solve them. So you'll enjoy it. She's one of my favorite guests. She's so much fun to talk to. Let's quit talking about her. Let's talk to her. You know what to do. Time to buckle up. Let's go. Welcome to the Boss Builder Podcast. So Natalie, we're going to talk today about conflict. Now we've already had you on to talk about conflict before, but this is a little different twist, isn't it? Because now suddenly we're in a different work arrangement. What have you been discovering lately when it comes to conflict when we're in a virtual environment? Yeah, we really are in a very different place than when you and I first spoke. Um, I mean, with many companies working remotely um, and at this type of scale for the first time for many companies ever, um, it's really different. And and when it comes to conflict, I think that conflict itself and how we react and relate to it hasn't changed, but the way that it's showing up and the way that we are dealing with it has changed a little bit because we are no longer seeing the person we just had a disagreement with. We don't have the pressure of uh, social pressure of walking past them in the office and, and feeling a little guilty that we, we haven't followed up with them after that disagreement in a, in a meeting. Um, it's a little bit easier now to X out of the meeting and, and honestly, a little bit easier to avoid it. And that can be a, a real slippery slope. Well, let's go back to conflict itself, because long before Zoom was one of our hot topics of 2020, conflict happened before. So from where you see it as a conflict expert, what is the root of conflict? Where does it come from and why do we all experience it? That's a great question. Um, the root of conflict. Well, you know, it, it looked very different hundreds of years ago, right? Conflict, I sometimes joke that, and may have said this to you before, conflict used to look like something wanted to eat you and you didn't want to be eaten, right? And we, <laughs> and what happens physiologically and emotionally and mentally in our bodies is we react a certain way when we are in tense or conflict situations. And we've heard the term fight, flight, or freeze, but really our body is preparing us to preserve ourselves. And when we talk about what that looks like in the modern day, present day work environment, it really still looks like preservation, but preservation looks a little bit different. It means um, protecting yourself from being undermined in a meeting or making sure that you get that promotion or the raise because that could mean something different for you and your family. So when we talk about conflict, the root of it really is a lot of 
ego, self-preservation, and then there's also trust and respect that play a huge role, particularly in workplace conflict. You've probably been doing this for a while. So I'm noticing a big difference in the way people treat each other, particularly when it comes to social media, particularly when it comes to politics. And I don't know if I've seen people that are so quick to throw their opinion and bash the others as I have seen probably in the last few years. Do you think social media makes it easy for us to take a stronger stand in conflict? Yeah, I do. And here's why. I think we feel um, protected by screens, right? There's an anonymity that comes with social media. We can make up our social media handles. Sometimes we don't even have to use a photo of ourselves, right? We can kind of be someone else. And with that comes um, maybe for some people, a bit of dismissal of that responsibility or, or ability to take account accountability for what they are saying through, um, through that platform. And it just becomes a lot easier to pretend that what you are saying or doing doesn't have an effect on someone. And in many ways, too, we aren't taking the time to get to know the people on the other side. In many cases, um, especially in you reference politics, we are responding quickly, and by quickly, I mean emotionally, from uh, to a comment from someone who maybe we have no idea who the person is. They live in a totally different state or country, but they've said something that, man, really sets us off. And we it's so easy now to just fire off a comment. And that becomes a problem because we're not taking the time that we truly physiologically need to step away from a situation or a person that has us in that ego self-preservation mode. Yeah, I think that's, you know, and I hate to get off on a topic like that, but I think that has, politics has so defined people's mindsets. And I think it all comes down to the fact that for whatever reason, we assume that if we state our case hard enough, we'll convince the other person to change their mind. So I was talking to my mom, she's 84, she still works full time. Every time I use her on the podcast, she gets mad because she says I give her age away. And um, so I'll just kind of tell you, she's extremely conservative and very religious. So I asked her one day, because she was trying to tell me why I should do, I should vote a certain way. I said, let me ask you this, Ma, if if Jesus came to your house and knocked on the door, could he convince you to vote for Joe Biden? And she looked at me with a straight face. She says, absolutely not. So there's my point right there. If you engage in this conflict, if we're talking about politics and social media. And if your end game is to convince somebody to change their mind, I don't think it's going to happen. So that really makes me wonder why would a person want to expend that kind of energy online or in a conflict? Is it really coming back down, Natalie, to fight or flight? It, I, I think it really is. And, and, I, and I love, um, there's so much that I love about that story. And I think it is so relatable for so many people probably listening because We've all had those moments and and what you uh, are doing or what your mother is doing in that moment is really grounding down into the position for whatever reason. And in that moment, you almost lose sight of why you want to be right and you lose sight of kind of the real issue and you you become, you take on this position and that is um, when you need to kind of hit the reset button. And the term that I use often is 
rehumanize your adversary is really step back and stop looking at them as their, you name it, political position, argument, disagreement, idea, and you you really remember um, and and really try to learn about who they are as a person. Now, for you, you have that you know that's that maybe easier to do with with a parent or a family member. Um, but to your point about social media, it's very difficult to do when we don't often know the person on the other side of the screen. Um, and it does. We 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 go into a defensive mode and we go into a place of wanting to to defend and preserve. And I think that is. Um, that is a lot of what it is. Absolutely. Well, I think of the classic defense against a position is like if you watch a debate or like when I was in high school, when we had a debate debate, like in a, in a history class, is that your goal is to knock the other person down and it's going to be survival of the fittest and strongest. That's how I see a classic conflict. But are all of those the way conflicts play out? Is it I'm going to talk and you're going to talk and whoever lasts the longest wins? Or do we have other strategies we might do in a conflict? Yeah, uh, that's a great point. I mean, if you are talking about a true negotiation, or if you are an attorney and your job is to fight for the position or, or the rights of your client, then that is your role. Your role is to to really resolve the conflict, but resolve it towards a certain outcome. When we're talking about conflict resolution in a workplace, for ex- for an example, um, where it might be a disagreement between a manager and employee, who's to say which position is absolutely right? Um, and I think what it becomes about then is less about defending one position or another and instead raising the level of awareness and understanding of both parties and, in order to disagree more productively in the future at best and at least in the meantime help them try to see where the other person might be coming from so that they can kind of loosen up their positions a little bit and at least have a little bit more of a a productive dialogue around what the real issues are Mm -hmm. well that probably was a little easier to do when we went to an office and i know you and i have different work lives, we, we work virtual, but for the person that was used to going to work every day, in a perfect world, they could sit in a room and they could disagree. Uh, you keep saying the word uh, productively. I keep thinking a productive cough for whatever reason. Yes. Maybe it's COVID-19, but right. be able to hash this out and face to face, and then they could run across each other in a hallway and be okay. Now, in a lot of organizations, people don't go to the office anymore. The office is 10 feet away from where they roll out of bed in the morning. And yet conflict, I'm sure, is still happening. So how is it showing up differently in a virtual environment? Yeah, it is showing up differently and we are handling it differently. And and you're right, we, we've all been thrown a whole different situation um, and set of circumstances that we are learning and learning to deal with and, and adapt to as we go along. We're all, you know, many of us are teachers and employees and parents um, and support systems all at one. And on top of it, we're still, we're, we're, we're still working um, many of us full time and it's just a lot to deal with. And, and so it is showing up differently. And part of, you know, what's adding to the stress is that our, our worlds have collided in a way that probably no one was prepared for. 
and and who can ever prepare for something like we're experiencing now. So on top of all of that, we're expected to show up to work in a different format. We are still hosting and and attending the same number of meetings, if not more. I just read something the other day that said people are spending on average uh, several hours more a day in meetings than they were when they were in the office. They're actually working more now than they were before. And we are sitting, we're standing, and we're staring at screens all day back to back. Um, One woman that I spoke to recently said she was in meetings for nearly 11 to 12 hours per day, every day the last week. Um, So we're exhausted in ways that we haven't been before. And when we are exhausted and when we feel helpless because of all the other stuff that is going on that we have no control over, we really do um, become a little more insecure. And I don't know about you, but when I feel insecure, I'm not at my best self. And many of us are that way. When we feel insecure, some of our less than favorable behaviors tend to show. And they're showing in a little bit of some different ways. Um, and conflict is, you're right, just popping up differently um, in in virtual environments now. But there are some things that, that you can look for and some things that I think managers and supervisors and company leaders can really start um, doing to help their employees feel a little bit more at ease or to make this Zoom again, as I've heard it re- referred to, a little bit more um, manageable or bearable. Well, the meetings, I mean, the last time I worked for somebody was like 2003, 2004. And, and there was days when it seemed like all we did is go from one meeting to the next. And all I remember from those is staring at my hands, watching my fingernails grow while I thought this is the biggest colossal waste of time. These people just are talking to hear the sound of their own voice. We could have done this by email. And now if I get with a company that I'm doing work with, I get suckered into their meetings. I always think, okay, that's fine because you're paying me by the hour to sit through this nonsense. But but we tolerated meetings, Natalie. And there was probably some nonverbal behaviors you could spot of somebody who's pissed being in a meeting. Do those exist when we're on Zoom? Because you're right, Zoomageddon, that is... I think COVID, social distance, and Zoom are going to be the words that define the year 2020. So does this show up on, let's just say, Zoom or WebEx or whatever your new meeting tool is? Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And I um, I recently did a video uh, post, I'll, I'll share with you the link, but um, of I, I put it out to LinkedIn and I asked people how conflict is showing up in virtual meetings. And not surprisingly, I had a lot of people reach out and share their kind of grievances with me. And I, I kind of put it together in the four top ways that conflict is showing up in virtual meetings. And I can kind of rattle them off to you and then we can dig into them if that, as you'd yeah, like. Yeah, let's do that. I want to know what to look for. Yeah. So the first, the biggest one was that people have their cameras off. Um, some people have their cameras off in in video meetings. Um, the, the second runner up was that, um, the chat function chat room box is, um, really frustrating and distracting. Uh, the third was that mute is, um, calling it both friend and foe. It can be great, but it can also be a, um, a real inhibitor of dialogue. And, um, and finally people want to really kind of continue connecting, humanize this virtual meeting experience. But there's also 
a little bit of trouble finding a balance with the banterism calling it, kind of not knowing when to stop the chatter um, and get to work um, or vice versa. Well, let's take a look at each of those. So there's a problem with the camera off. Now, mm-hmm. I will show my face. It's really not exciting to look at. And if I shut it off, you'd have a much more pleasant experience in a meeting with me. But what is the reasons why people shut the camera off? Great question. Uh, you know, they're they're all different. And I, and I do want to say, you know, by no means am I saying you absolutely should always have your camera on or that company leaders should mandate um, that people have their videos on. There are lots of good reasons why someone may not want their camera on. I had a woman reach out to me after I posted the video and she said, hey, I loved everything that you said, and I'm running into a lot of that in in my virtual meetings, but I will say as a new mom, um, I actually am someone who's not had my video on because I I am wearing my PJs most of the day. And sometimes I do have to breastfeed my baby and I just don't want to have to have the camera on. And I want to feel like that's okay. And so I think that um, the, the challenge becomes when we don't communicate about what those expectations are. So if you, I, I personally think of um, the no video on as it's akin to having your laptop open during a meeting, right? It's an actual barrier to people engaging and it, with you and seeing your expressions and seeing your body language in your face and, and in some cases hearing your voice. Um, but what we're built to do as humans is constantly scan our environment for clues to see whether we can trust someone. We're actually paying attention when we see someone's face for, are they hearing us? Are they understanding us? Is my point getting across? And when we're doing that in a Zoom meeting, when you see however many little boxes of faces are up on your screen, we're scanning, we're looking around, we're trying to see, are people paying attention? Are are they looking off in the distance? Are they staring at their phone? Or is their camera off altogether? And I have no idea what's going on over there. Um, so it can be a real stressor for people because it it can feel like um, they are the person with the video off is less engaged. And when some people feel like they're pulling more weight or they're more engaged than others, we know um, that that can show up as resentment or a morale killer in in many team situations. Well, I mean, I, I see the reason why a person wouldn't want to turn the thing on. You're not going to breastfeed your kid at the conference table in the office. That's totally. just, you don't do it. But I think too, that, you know, you could almost look at it as a challenge. You know, if I'm doing a workshop and I always tell people, I don't care if you have your laptops open, you can look at your phones. It doesn't bother me one bit. Cause for me, it's a challenge. If I can make it interesting enough where they put their phones down that's good. And that's what I'm looking for. But it sounds like it's the lack of communication around why I'm not showing my face that's going to lead to the conflict. Is that right? I think it's that. And it, it's it's twofold. The first on the front end of the meeting, right? We, we spend a lot of time planning meetings. And even when we talk about having a meeting in person, part of hosting an effective meeting, yes, you're right, is figuring out how am I going to make it engaging? Is this content relevant? Um, can I set and share an agenda ahead of time so that people understand why they're even coming? Um, but translate that to a virtual environment, you would do all of those same things, right? But now we have this added layer of communicating expectations for how they engage and how people are engaging in a virtual meeting. So if you are the meeting host and you expect 
to be able to gauge the room or you're presenting something where it's really helpful to have people interacting and there is the, the hope and expectation that everyone is engaged, then you might say, hey, the expectation for this video meeting is that videos are on. And that's why it's a video meeting as opposed to an email or a phone call, right? But if you set the expectation ahead of time, that eliminates one piece of it, right? People are going into that meeting saying, all right, camera's supposed to be on, but, and here's the second part, if there's a good reason why you wouldn't have that uh, video on, you could communicate that to the group or at least to the meeting host or your or your manager and say, hey, I'm not feeling great today. I, I really hope you don't mind, but I'm going to have my uh, video off. And we would do that in a meeting, right? There's that social pressure in person when you ha- when you are the person with your laptop open to say, hey, sorry, um, I just need to be on my laptop because I'm waiting for this email to come in or I'm on a tight deadline and, and things are shifting quickly or I'm the person who's capturing notes for this meeting, right? We feel when there are eyes around us and we're, we are in a physical space with other people and we've created that barrier, we've put the, the laptop between us and the rest of the group, we, most of us, I should say, feel a need to kind of explain why that is the case. Um, and you'd also maybe in some situation expect that the meeting host has said like, hey, no, this is a laptops open meeting or it's not. And many, many companies have some of those policies in place. Um, but I think it's the communication both on the front end and as the person with the video off, letting others know so that it's clear and we're all on the same page. Yeah, I think that's what it really comes down to. Think about, you know, what, what I at least figure is that when you don't have information, I personally start assuming the worst. And maybe if I'm not seeing somebody's face, my imagination's running wild. What's going on? So the communication heads the whole thing off and you solve challenge number one with the camera. Okay, good. All right. So you mentioned the second one, Natalie, was the chat box. So how does this show up as a conflict issue? Oh, man. Okay. So, I mean, again, think about an in-person meeting, right? Imagine you're the meeting host. Maybe you're presenting something. Maybe you're giving an important update. Or maybe it's just a, a everyone needs to be on the same page about where we are in a, in a particular project. If there are two people, two or more people in that meeting who are carrying on and talking separately while someone is presenting, what do we do? Again, there's that social pressure. If you're like me, I kind of give the silent treatment for a moment and just kind of wait for them to stop talking or wait for them to listen for the silence. And then they kind of turn and say, oh, I'm sorry. Um, but, or there's a bunch of people who are also in the room who are kind of making eyes, wondering when they're going to stop talking because it's distracting. Right. And, and and when we don't have the, the social pressure in person, um, it's pretty much the chat room. That's what's happening there. So we're allowing each other to interrupt each other. Um, and I know I, people are coming up with all of these really fantastic phrases. Poor Zoom, by the way. I know there are lots of other systems out there, but it just happens to be the the um, niftiest with regard to creating words like Zoom corrupting, um, which is, <laughs> I guess, exactly what it sounds like. Well, they're they're not upset. Trust me, they're laughing all the way to the bank because they're the only ones making money anymore. Right? right? Yeah, I guess so. Um, but yeah, we're. I mean, and we're talking over each other now. Let let's. First, say there are 
Um, again, lots of good reasons. I, I, I like to assume positive intentions. I am sure no one is intentionally really talking over people with malintent. Maybe there are audio issues, connectivity issues, lots of reasons um, that you may kind of interrupt someone in a meeting. But when we're talking about the chat function specifically, it's a little bit of a different story because it does allow you to carry on almost separately um, in a way that, again, feels very distracting and and a little bit rude. Um, And so if you're the meeting presenter or you're even someone who just has the, the floor in the virtual meeting and people are carrying on in chat, um, you can become, I mean, there's the, I know on Zoom, there's the orange blinking chat light. So there are things that kind of tell you things are happening even while you're talking and it can be a real distraction. Um, but it, it can, it, and it can really create some tension. And again, kind of going back to the communication piece, we haven't, in many cases, haven't set clear expectations around how we want things to be used, like the chat function. We've sort of jumped into this because we had to. We started using all of the virtual meeting systems and sort of retrofitted them for our needs, but they we're still figuring out how it all works um, and how to make it as similar as possible to in-person meetings. And that's, it's very difficult. But the chat function is one um, that I think when people are carrying on about something entirely separate, I'll give you an example. Uh, I was in a presentation, I uh, was joined some webinar and the, the presenters were going on and there was a gentleman who posted in the chat room, hey, I developed some content around X, Y, and Z topic. If you're interested, send me your email. And there were probably 200 people on this webinar. And the next thing you know is, everyone, thanks, so-and-so, here's my email, thanks. And the chat room is lighting up with all of these emails. Now, I'm sure the guy who who said it was thrilled, Um, but the presenters literally stopped the presentation and said, hey, Tom, or whatever his name was, um, we really love that you're sharing content and getting people to engage in chat, but it's a little bit distracting. We can send out the participant list, or we can make sure that everyone gets your content if you send it to us. But they had to pause because it was so disruptive. Um, And I would imagine a little frustrating for them because even after they said that, it carried on, right? Some people heard that message. Some people didn't. Um, So it is. it it can be uh, definitely a tough situation. Yeah, I guess if you were not able to run a good meeting before this, technology is only going to make your inadequacies even larger, it sounds like. And we're only we're only two flaws into this. We've got two more to go, Natalie. So, <laughs> all right. So let's talk about the third one, which is the mute button. Yes. Um, mute friend or foe is, is what I'm saying. And, and again, I know I sound like a broken record. Lots of good reasons. Someone might hit mute. Um, you may have children running around in the background. Maybe your partner is on a conference call and they speak loudly. Like my husband, I discovered, I knew he was a loud talker, but man, he is really a loud talker. Um, and so, and so there are lots of reasons why you might have uh, yourself on mute during a meeting. But what mute does is it inhibits really the natural flow of dialogue. So if you think about, again, an in-person meeting, you would never tell someone to shut up or be quiet the minute they walk through the meeting room door, right? We would not say, do not say anything until we ask you to speak, um, because that's not how 
many of us want our meetings run. We want, if we're hosting a meeting and there are several people in the room, it's because we value and really want the ideas and perspectives of the people in that room. And I would assume the same is true for even virtual meetings. If people are taking the time to have been invited to a meeting and show up to a meeting to discuss a topic, I I would hope that their values, or I'm sorry, that their uh, perspectives and ideas are valued. Um, But when and I know there have been some updates with Zoom, so I, I don't think they automatically mute people upon entry anymore. I think that's now something that you have to enable. Um, but it is something that I think if you if you are muting people upon entry or you're asking them to mute themselves upon entry, just consider how that is going to disrupt or inhibit the flow of dialogue. And for people who are less comfortable speaking freely or um, or, or aren't the type of person to kind of jump in and really run with a conversation in a virtual meeting, it may feel like a lot of work and a little intimidating to unmute yourself. And when you think about kind of the momentum you have in a conversation, um, stump, we've all done it, kind of fumbling for the mute button, unmuting ourselves. And by the time we figure it out, or we start talking and we're muted and you've got eight people then chiming in saying, Oh, Nat- Natalie, I think you're, I think you're on mute. And by the time you unmute it, you've kind of lost the lost the excitement or vigor for what you are actually going to contribute. Um, it can just be a real inhibitor. Um, and I don't think that's what people want. Well, I don't know about that. I remember in the old days of meetings, when someone would walk in, I would roll my eyes. And so there needs to be a zoom thing, right? If somebody comes in that you would roll your eyes because they're there, the mute should automatically go on. <laughs> the eye roll, eye roll mute recognition. Yeah. But then you'd have to have your camera on. So I don't know. We've kind of screwed this all up. But, you know, I, I guess I, I had never thought about that. If you are let in and not allowed to speak, does anybody value your voice? I, that's I never thought about it that way. Yeah. But I could see how you would take it. So, well, that leaves us with one more of your best top four worst practices here, I guess if we can call them. And you said something of balancing the banter with something else. I don't remember what it was. Yeah. Well, we, we, that we haven't found a great balance with banter. I think, you know, if you look at a lot of the content that's out there right now on virtual meetings and how to make them more human and how to create the connection that so many of us are, are craving. Um, there are lots of articles about, you know, icebreakers you can do in virtual meetings and, and ways to kind of rehumanize the virtual meeting experience, which is, I think, absolutely needed and important. And I think that as especially as meeting host company leaders and managers, we have to make sure that we are balancing that um, with with making sure that our meetings are not meaningless because what it can turn into, and I did have some people reach out and say, man, I I understand that people want to connect and talk, but we've, there are some meetings where we've spent 20 minutes talking about COVID-19 or just everyday life stuff, which is great, but also feels like now that's 20 minutes of a meeting where we haven't accomplished anything. And I know that I have a hard stop at 12 p.m. because I have to feed my kids lunch. And so I think that really being mindful of how much we are um, kind of using small talk to connect, but also making sure that we're, we are balancing that with kind of getting to the point and really um, making sure our meetings are, in fact, um, productive is important. And, um, and I think it's a great place, too, to say, 
you know, or for people to ask themselves, like, does it feel out of bounds? Does it feel like you're spending too much time with with the small talk? Does this feel like a meeting we need to have? Or should this instead be an open office hour just for people to convene and talk? Um, And I I think these are great questions to be asking um, to find to help us find a balance. Because like I said earlier, we've sort of jumped in and assumed this as the new go-to video meetings, that is. Um, Well, we can't meet in person, so it's automatically a video meeting. And I would challenge people to think about whether that's even uh, necessary, right? Does it, should it be a video meeting or should it be a phone call? Do we have a better chance of being more present and engaged on a phone call versus a, versus a one hour video meeting? I think especially people hosting the meeting um, can challenge themselves and challenge um, their teams with figuring out the right way to meet um, that will allow people to be most present and decrease tension for everyone involved. Yeah, I mean, I know that some companies are doing a virtual happy hour. Uh, I actually did one with one of the guys at one of the companies we do business with who I really like. And we just took a Friday, I think it was five or six, we each poured a drink and we just talked. And it was nice because he's isolated and I'm somewhat isolated too. But I agree, if you don't have that outlet, then anytime humans get together, and this would be for people with maybe that stronger preference for extroversion. They're they're energized by the conversation. But you've given us four things to be aware of. Now, in a a perfect world, and again, I guess you can tell how much I hated working for companies, but I would always have this visual in my mind in these boring, mind-numbing meetings of having this little handle I could pull, and the person at the table, their chair would just drop into the flaming pit or something. We basically can do that now, Natalie, with Zoom, couldn't we? I mean, you could just completely disconnect somebody you were getting sick and tired of listening to. I'm not sure that's the strategy you are suggesting. So what is a better alternative to handling meeting problems without pushing that magic button? You're, that is hilarious. And I think you, <laughs> I think everyone has their own version of that, right? Um and you've, you've said a couple of things that I, that I think are absolutely spot on. There, there are some people who were not great meeting hosts or, or struggled a little bit with hosting effective meetings um, before this. And yes, now a virtual environment presents a bunch of new challenges. Um, and, and yes, there are, uh, I, I don't think that that is the best way, although you could uh, boot somebody from a meeting or mute them or turn off their video uh, it, it is not my suggested route. Um, I want to go back to uh, the, the chat function because I do have a couple of tips for that. Um, I think chat can be appropriate. So, so if you find yourself struggling with the interrupting, whether you're a meeting host and people are, are um, interrupting you or whether you are someone who finds yourself kind of prone to disengaging from the meeting presentation and, and going in the chat room, um, I think it's important that you use the chat when you're sharing something that's relevant to this discussion, like a link or an article or some sort of resource. Um, If someone's audio isn't working and they are using the chat to communicate, of course, that's important that they have that forum. And then finally, if there's a technical question that you'd like to ask related to the content, um, these are great ways to make sure that you are using the chat in a in a respectful, appropriate way. 
If you find yourself carrying on about a topic that's tangential or doesn't really feel relevant, don't leave the meeting, but just maybe pause that chat conversation and and take it offline or schedule time to chat with that person um, outside of that particular meeting. And then kind of, you know, one of the big takeaways for this is I think people have to ask themselves, am I setting expectations around what these meetings are for, how we want them to run, what we want people getting out of them? When you think about conflict, um, or when when I ask people to think about conflict, I ask them to think about why they are experiencing conflict. And so much of it really is, it's a lot of the self-preservation that we talked about. It's trust and respect, yes. And some of it too is just going into something, expecting or believing one thing, and being totally blindsided with something different, right? So when you have mismatched expectations, everyone is kind of set up for disappointment. And that can be a real um, productivity killer and morale killer. And it really can create tension on teams that is if you put in the work up front and set those expectations and communicate clearly, it can really help mitigate a lot of that. Um, So I think the expectation setting and communication is one of the the most important tips that I would share um, as people are thinking about how to improve their virtual meetings, for sure. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's great. It seems like with our coworkers or people in the office, we can have a disagreement, we can settle it, we go through these steps, and, and it usually gets better. But I can also see a different side of this that now that we're forced to be with family, close family, we're experiencing the same stuff. So, I mean, before this came down, I traveled probably 30 plus weeks a year. And my wife and I are empty nesters. The kids are long gone. And so we were kind of used to having this space. Well, now I haven't got on a plane since March the 5th, I think it's been. And I can definitely see, even if I couldn't, she would let me know, that I am a lot more difficult to be around all the time. And I have my office I can come to and work. I think a lot of, well, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, maybe you don't have these problems, but I would assume that a lot of families who are not used to being crammed in together are experiencing conflict. We know how to deal with it professionally because we have to, but what tips do you have for families who are wrestling with this too? Are they going to be different? Because you don't have Zoom with your family. Right. You, you don't. Um, or I mean, some people are, you know, I've seen a lot of zoom birthday parties, but, um, but yeah, no, you're right. We are, it's a lot easier in many cases to address conflict, um, with our colleagues because there are these kind of, um, unwritten rules, if you will, or social expectations around the workplace and around kind of quote unquote professionalism that basically say, you know, we have to show up and work with these people every day. And so, uh, and my career might depend on whether I'm able to handle conflict or not. Um, and so we feel a different pressure to, to handle it at work than maybe we do with our families. Um, and you're right, families are under a, an incredible amount of strain um, in this particular situation. So one, I'm going to say one thing, and it spans both areas, both professional and personal. I kind of lightly mentioned it earlier, but it's easier than ever to not address conflict right now. And I would encourage people to not fall prey to avoidance um, because it is it just never works. (laughs) Avoiding conflict just doesn't ever turn out the way um, 
you probably want it to. Um, unless you're someone who's really okay with with kind of walking away from relationships, uh, I, I just don't know that that's ever really the right answer. But what it presents for families is a unique opportunity to get to know your family members um, on a more holistic level. And what I mean by that is, you know, I do lots of exercises with teams where we do communication assessments or your disc assessments and work style assessments. And they sit down and they talk about it and they talk about how they like to communicate over email or how they like to uh, host a meeting or things that really frustrate them in the workplace. But how often we do, do we do that with our families? Um, and so I feel like now is a really ideal time to sit down, whether you have kids or whether it's with a partner um, or whether you're, whether you have parents um, living with you, sit down and really talk about what matters to you. What do you what do you care about? Um, what do you what really frustrates you? How do you want to be working during this time and living during this time? I have uh, two stepkids. Noah is about to be 16 in about a month and Chloe is 13. And one of the things that we did was we sat down and we said, all right, what, when do you feel like you're most productive? Or what's the thing that's making you most nervous about not being in school for the rest of the year? And so we, we did our best to try to understand what this meant for them. And, um, and I think that's really important because what happens, and this is going back to exactly what we talked about in the beginning is we, we really focus on ourselves when things get tough. We, we are naturally inclined to say, uh Oh, what does this mean for me? How am I going to get through this? What do I need to do to make this situation work? Um, when someone sitting across from us at the dinner table is probably dealing with their own, uh, a whole different range of emotions and fears and hopes for, for this situation. So I would encourage people, especially when things get tough, is figure out what the real issues are, um, just as you would with a colleague and, and have an honest conversation with your family members and your kids, your parents or whomever you're, you are spending the most time with right now. Um, about what's frustrating you and how y'all can work together to really um, overcome it. What advice would you have to, let's just use the example of a parent, right? Now they are managing a household and they're trying to hold down a job and they're trying to encourage everybody not to become deviant and they're dealing with people who blank out the screen on their Zooms you know, everybody's under stress and then you want to turn on the TV for some relief and then all you get is the news and nobody's got any good news to share. So what's the strategy for a person to be able to manage all this without completely losing it? Yeah, I I don't know. Um, I wish I had like Natalie's five-step strategy to staying sane during (laughs) COVID-19, but but I think the um, the most you can do is um, I, a couple things. One, I say this a lot. It's kind of a mantra. And I know there have been some graphics kind of visuals out there that, that have illustrated this to a certain extent, but focus on what you can control because there's so much, um, what you listed off are just so many things. And, and there's a reason that a teacher is one job and, uh, and a parent is another. And, Uh, an employee is another and a student is another, right? And so we are, we've been asked to kind of be all of these things and it's actually not realistic at all. So I think kind of understand that there's lots going on that you can't actually control. 
And if you want to kind of give yourself some room to reflect, consider what actually is within your realm of control and what you can be focusing on and doing um, during this time. It may be really important for some people that they go for a 20 minute walk every day just to clear their head or just to kind of stay calm. Um, I've, I've heard of some people, I've actually myself tried to take up gardening because there's something very therapeutic about just being able to plant something and see it and kind of manage, uh, you know, manage that during this time when everything else feels so unmanageable. Um, so really focusing on what you can control, I think is a big one. And then there's a, a woman um, speaker and author named Catherine Winch, and she wrote a book called Slay Like a Mother. Um, and I went to hear her speak when she launched uh, or when, when she first um, launched her book. And she said, if you are a parent of an 11 year old, you're a parent of an 11 year old until they turn 12. And then you're a parent of a 12 year old. And if you've never raised a 12 year old before, you are doing that for the very first time. And and it really stuck with me because I think we have these ideas in our minds about how we are supposed to show up um, and kind of conquer everything. When in, when in fact, the reality is all of us right now are operating in a situation that we've never operated in before. Even if you've been in a crisis before, even if you're a manager or supervisor and you've managed through chaos or crisis, you haven't managed through this crisis. And so I think giving yourself a little bit of grace um, and room to be imperf- imperfect and to mess up a little bit um, and having compassion first and foremost for yourself is is absolutely critical. And and then I think by extension, it allows you to have uh, more grace and forgiveness and compassion for, for the people on your team, for your family members. Um, it sounds easier than I think it is to do, but I think it's something that we can all really be practicing during this time. Well, and you're somebody who lives this, you know, you're in a situation with two teenagers uh, cooped up. I don't know whether I could handle that right now. So, you know, when you get your other three points to go with those two, Natalie, we'll have you back on the show because everybody (laughs) wants to know what the other three are since we figure it out. But, you know, this this was really helpful. There's so many things that we could have not have predicted. And with them come a whole new set of operating procedures. One that I don't think anybody could have planned for is conflict in a meeting on Zoom. So thank you for taking the time to enlighten us and for doing the research on this. It is so timely right now. We really, really appreciate you coming and sharing your information with us today, Natalie. Thanks, Mac. I've really enjoyed chatting with you and um, looking forward to keeping in touch. Yeah, well, on that subject of keeping in touch, I mean, we're not going to leave you as the best kept secret in Virginia. How can our audience reach out to you and get you to partner with them? Because obviously you do this for a living, right? I do, yes. Um, yes, if people are interested in talking, they can email me directly. My email is natalie at 180.io. 180 is all spelled out. Um, or they can head to my website. And that is uh, www.180, again, all spelled out, .io. Um, and I have a bunch of articles and videos out right now on both LinkedIn and the website um, where there's information like this and some other, uh, some other hopefully good tips 
um, that people can tap into. Excellent. Yeah. So if this is your new reality, then please reach out to Natalie. Natalie, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Mac. Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Boss Builder Podcast, the podcast for those of you who are new to supervision, those of you in the role and struggling, and even those of you who are thinking about one day making the important transition to management. This podcast is just one resource we have. If you check out our website at greatbosstools.com, you can view some other resources we have there. We'd love to have you as part of our courses. If you're listening to this podcast on any podcast app, we'd also appreciate you taking a few moments to give us a review. Positive, of course, it really helps us out. So with that, take care and get out there and make it your goal to be the absolute best boss ever. (laughs) 